Hello everyone and welcome to the September 2021 Mark Leverage podcast. It's fabulous to be back with you again. As usual, I've put together a selection of topics to chat to you about and I'm going to start this month by thinking a little bit about audience reaction. Now, of course, while all the COVID restrictions have been on, those of us who have been still been able to perform via Zoom will have had this rather surreal experience of not being able to gauge very accurately what an audience or how an audience is reacting to what we're doing. Especially if they've been muted, you might be able to see on some of the screens that people are clapping. But even then, people sometimes don't when on the other side. It's like watching television. If you watch a television show on TV, you don't tend to clap it, do you? And so people, the natural reaction isn't to show um, their appreciation in that way as you would when you're at a live show. So I'm sure all, all live performers are saying, oh, thank goodness we can get back to being appreciated again. But it led me to think that, that there are actually no clear indications on occasion as to how an audience is feeling about what you're doing, even when you're with them face to face. I can remember when, um, I, probably over 20 years ago now, I recorded my Strolling Magician DVD and Mike Close reviewed it after I started to market it in, I think it was in Magic Magazine. And one of the comments that he made was uh, along the lines of, and he was referring, I think, and, and speaking uh, to American magicians in particular, saying, don't be put off by the relatively muted reaction of the audiences. This is strong material. It's just that people in the UK don't react particularly overtly to it or worse to that effect. And, and that was very nice to point that out, because to me, the reaction that I was getting when I was doing the performance and that you see on the DVD um, was OK, because that's what I was used to. But to the Americans who are much more used to a more overt displays of enthusiasm for this from their spectators, to them it would probably have seemed very muted indeed. They think, oh gosh, this material must be rubbish because he's not getting any reaction with it. So there was a, there's an occasion where even when you're face to face with an audience, sometimes you don't get an overt reaction to what you're doing. I can think of many occasions where I've been doing tables. One table, uh, they are hollering, they are shouting, applauding loudly, even whistling and saying, fantastic. You go to another table and they hardly seem to respond at all. And your natural reaction is thinking, oh, I didn't do very well at that table. Actually, you probably did. It's just that that particular group of people didn't feel comfortable in making a lot of noise or showing in a particularly extrovert way their appreciation of what you did. And there have been other times where I've had an opportunity to talk to spectators after the official show. And the same thing applies. People say, oh, that was absolutely brilliant. I'm thinking, well, that's funny. Why didn't you show it at the time? You know, they didn't feel they needed to or they were so absorbed by the magic. I mean, occasionally at a table, in order to elicit some applause, I'll use a line of, I normally consider that to be an applause point. And people go, oh, yeah, right. Sorry. And then they'll clap. And sometimes people will add the comment, sorry, I, I, I was too busy trying to work it out or I was too stunned, stunned to applaud or whatever. So in other words, it, they, uh, they, were t they were internally appreciating what I'd been doing, even if they didn't show it externally. Uh, so I think sometimes we can be lulled into feeling either rightly or wrongly that the reaction has been 
perhaps not what we expected. I can remember one show that I did uh, many years ago where it was a, a corporate event and I was doing tables and I, and I did the whole thing and I went to the booker at the end and I said, well, I'm sort of finished now. I've done everything I can do, so I'll be off. Everything okay? So that's fine. Thanks very much. Lovely. And off I went. And then about a week later, the agent who booked me for the event received a complaint from the booker about me saying that I hadn't done my allotted time and that I hadn't done what I, what I was supposed to be doing. And I couldn't believe it because I'd not treated that show any differently than I treated any others. Now, it could just be that this particular person was trying to was trying it on. Uh, and he said because he said he wanted £100 off the bill because I had I'd not fulfilled my contract, which was absolute nonsense. But of course, it was only my word against his. And unfortunately, the agent decided to side with the booker and gave him a £100 discount, which he passed on to me. So I wasn't best pleased, especially because... What he'd said I hadn't done, I had done. So there was an occasion where I thought I'd done fine. I asked him before I left whether everything was okay. He'd said yes. You know, it turned out that he wasn't happy really. So be careful what you wish for. Going back to live shows can be and should be great, but don't uh, necessarily take at face value those audience reactions. I was sent a book recently for review in Magic Scene by somebody called Paul McCrory. And the book was called Hook Your Audience. Now, Paul is, in fact, he, he was at one time an amateur magician, but um, what he actually is, as his job, he's a professional informal educator. That is somebody who does um, lessons, if you like, but rather than being in a classroom in a school, they're in more informal settings, whether it be libraries or school halls, whereas as a visiting speaker and that sort of thing. And he's written this book about how presenters can hook their audiences to make the message or the educational message that they want to put across relevant and memorable. And it's the reason he sent this to me is because so many of the principles that he's talking about apply precisely to magicians and the way that they perform. So that's why I'm going to be doing a review in the November magic scene. But I've already started to read the book. because It's quite a big book and um, it's, it's a really interesting book. And he's used a number of quotes from various people to back up things that he was saying. And there was one quote that, that caught my attention from somebody called Jeff Worth. And, and, and Jeff was talking about um, interactive theatre. And he, what he said was that interactive theatre combines the richness of rehearsed material the spontaneity of improvisation and the empowerment of participation. The richness of rehearsed material, the spontaneity of improvisation and the empowerment of participation. Now he's referring to interactive theatre, but I thought, wow, that's a pretty accurate assessment if you had to define what makes strolling magic so memorable, because that also applies to that form of magic as well. In fact, a lot of magic, but particularly to strolling magic. Because we do rehearse what we do when we go to tables or groups, of course. But good strolling magicians aren't set in a rigid pattern of performance. It's not an official show. And so we tend to go off at, at tangents, make take on board things that in the that people have said in the audience and use them to our own ends 
jazz a little bit on occasions, go off uh, with the magic in a direction that we hadn't perhaps intended, but certainly ad-libbing with lines and so on and so forth. So that's you've got the richness of the rehearsed material, which you keep coming back to as the essence of your of your strolling magic show. But you have this spontaneity of improvisation as you you do all these little asides and various other bits, responding to how the the audience or what they say and what they do. And then the empowerment of participation, because our magic really does actively involve more often than not our spectators, whether it's looking at things, holding things, whether we're borrowing things from them, whether we're talking directly to them and using their responses as part of our show, then people feel really involved. And I think this is why if you talk to lay people and they find out you're about to entertain them in a strolling magic sort of setting, they will often, before you can start, say, oh, I love magic. Let me tell you about this guy I saw. And they will often then come out with a description of magic they've seen in a similar situation on a previous occasion. And it's nearly always a really, really positive impression that they've had of that type of magic. So positive that they've remembered it sometimes for years all right, their, their judgment may be a little clouded as to how brilliant the magician was. They usually think he's better than he probably was. But nevertheless, as long as the impression that the spec layperson, the spectators had, is a good one, then I would say the entertainer's done a very good job. So I really loved that quote. And, and I thought, yes, do you know, that, that really does sum up why I love doing strolling magic. Uh, it is all involving for the audience. It, it is fun. It's not rigid. Um, it, it is something that people will hopefully remember because they were so actively involved. Uh, and so it made me think of that when he was talking about interactive theatre. For the last few years, I've been going around magic clubs doing lectures comprising of material taken from my eClub Pro online vaults. And the current lecture that I've been doing for the last two years has been very successful. It started off, of course, I did two or three live performances until COVID kicked in March of last year. And since then, I've been doing them on Zoom and they've gone down extremely well. And I've really enjoyed doing them because I was forced, if you like, to go onto the Zoom platform in order to continue to do lectures it made me realise that actually this is a very good format for me to use to have open events where, whereas normally a, a club would book me and I'd go along to the club and unless the club invited other clubs to send members over, it would basically be me just lecturing for the members of that particular club. Well, if I have an open event, I can do exactly the same lecture on Zoom, but I can invite anybody. And I did an, an open event back in February which was very successful because I was able to have people from literally all around the world joining me in a nice little select group for me to present the lecture to. So um, I've decided that um, the, because the current lecture was the 19, as <laughs> a throwback, 2020 to 2021 version. And uh, shortly I'm going to be putting together a, a new version for, for 22-23 season, if you like. But uh, I wanted to do this, this current one one more time and make it an open event so that if you are one of the people who would like to see the material that's been in the lecture for the last two years and you haven't had a chance yet, now is the moment. The date is the 22nd of this month, the 22nd of September. The start time is 7.30pm, British summertime, in the evening. And the lecture lasts a couple of hours and involves 
magic that's suitable for strolling, a close-up show, stand-up, and mentalism. It's it's very varied, and all the items are very are very practical, and do not require lots of specialist props. There's the odd little thing here and there, but generally speaking, there's hardly anything you're going to need that you won't either already have, or which you can easily get. So if you'd like to join me, it's a it, you need to book in advance. And obviously, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, time is beginning to run out. It'll probably be the last time I, I use this action, this combination of actual material in a lecture. So it's a good opportunity for you from the comfort of your own home, where, of course, you always have a seat in the front row. You'll be able to join me for the Zoom presentation. And even if you're feeling a little bit um, zoomed out, it might be worth coming along and joining me in order to get some of the benefit of the material that uh, is included in the lecture. The price is £15, so it's not a fortune, and hopefully you will be interested in joining me. So that's Wednesday, the 22nd of September at 7.30pm in the evening. And if you go to my website, markleverish.co.uk, on the homepage you'll find a link to more details and also the ability to book online. Hope to see you there. One of the frustrations for performers is the feeling that you are answering a lot of show inquiries, but that the number of those that then turn into paid bookings can seem to be very low. It's as if you're pinging out quotes all over the place, but only the occasional one is coming back and saying yes. And that can be very frustrating and it kind of knocks your confidence a bit, doesn't it? You think, well, what's the matter with my quote? Why, why are people not booking me? They must be booking somebody else. Why are they not booking me? And I suspect that most people, the very first thing they make as, an, as a, a reason in their own head, if you like, for why they haven't got it, the booking is probably something like, ah, I suppose I'm too expensive. And so then the temptation is to start dropping your price to see if, you, if that is the thing that's going to tip the balance and start to get the bookings coming in. A dangerous policy in my view, because... Who knows what the expectations are of the people booking in terms of price. But I'm, I don't think actually it more often than not, it is about price. I mean, it could be and it can be. But I have identified a number of different reasons why people don't book you. And I thought I'd just mention them now. The first one is sometimes people make an inquiry and it's it's not necessarily a hard and fast inquiry. They're having an event. And they're kind of thinking, what do they want to do in that event? What type of function is it going to be? They're right, they've got food, they've maybe got some background music, they've got drink, of course. What else do they want? Oh, maybe we could have a strolling magician. So they make an inquiry on that basis, not because they are definitely after a strolling magician, but because, oh, what about a magician? That would be fun. So they get in the quotes, they read about what's involved, and then they think, ah, actually... No, I think we'll have a. I think we'll have a jazz band instead. That way, the people can carry on their conversations and they and they, and they won't get interrupted by the magician coming around or, or something like that. So, in other words, basically, the booker has changed their mind. It's not that they're not just booking you; they're not actually booking any magician because they've completely changed their idea over what they want to have. The second thing might be maybe you and what you describe of how you're going to work it doesn't fit what they had in their head as being what they wanted. Now, we all know that these days, nine times out of ten, people will make an online inquiry via email or through your website. 
and that doesn't allow much of a conversation does it in fact sometimes it doesn't allow any conversation so this person has got in their head a fixed view perhaps of how the magician is going to operate at their event so then you send back your description of what you do and they compare that to what they thought they wanted they think oh no this guy's no good he's not offering what i want and so they move on to either to something else or someone else so it can be just simply that your offering is not what they think they want. The third thing is it could be that your face doesn't fit. Now, depending on how they've got hold of you, if you're on one of these online agencies like Bark or Add to Event, the person doesn't isn't making an inquiry just with you. They they put it onto their onto these um, online agency systems, and of course, if your demographic fits the type of event that they're having. Uh, then they will, you will receive this person's inquiry along with several other magicians. So then you send your details back, at which point, if they think they might be interested, they may well then go through to the more detailed pages of information that you have on the Bark or Add to Event websites, or they may go directly to your own website. And they may then bring up video and pictures of you and think, oh, oh God, he's really old. Or, oh no, he's way too young. So in other words, that your face might not fit. There's something about the way you look, the way you're dressed, what you appear to be doing in other events. They, oh, no, that's not the kind of... We're having a, a goth event. This guy's in a, in a tuxedo. No, he's not for us. So, you know, that can be a reason, just simply that your face doesn't fit. The fourth thing is that sometimes the whole event gets cancelled. Now, this has been very common over the last couple of years of course people have tried to book ahead for events they've made inquiries about entertainers but by the time the event has got close to actually taking place they realize that they're not going to be allowed to hold it the number of people that they thought they could invite is no longer possible and so they decide just to cancel the whole thing either cancel it or possibly postpone it lots and lots of weddings have been postponed uh, and have been shoved on sometimes more than once i've got one booking coming on in a few days time in fact that's finally going to take place and the original inquiry was made four years ago it was made two years in advance but of course unfortunately the actual date for the wedding itself was in the middle of covid so <clears throat> it's been rescheduled at least twice since then hopefully it's now going to take place but who knows so it can be that the event is cancelled Another thing is the fifth one would be um, people when they lay people when they make inquiries often don't have any idea of what the costs might be. And it could be that your quote is way beyond what they imagined they would be paying. I can imagine people sitting at home saying, well, we'll get a magician for our party. Well, we, we can afford up to £100. That should be fine. And then the cheapest quote they get is 299 or something. And they go, oh, my God, no, that's way too expensive, way out of our price range. And so they just dismiss the idea of magicians generally or perversely and conversely occasionally you can be too cheap people sometimes associate a high price with a quality product because in a lot of avenues and areas of commerce that can be the case and therefore they they see that you're at a price saying oh no we want someone a bit better than that and so you without you realizing it you've actually quoted too cheaply to get this particular booking 
And the final thing, number six, is that sometimes people make an inquiry quite a long way in advance of their event and you don't hear anything for weeks, sometimes months. And you think to yourself, oh, they obviously don't want me. But sometimes it's simply that the people just haven't got round yet to making up their minds. They're still thinking about it. And so you make the assumption that, oh, well, I'm not going to get that booking. And then occasionally, months after you actually sent the quote out, you'll suddenly get contact from the people again saying, oh, you were um, several months ago, you gave us a quote. If you're still available, we'd like to book you. So something that looked like it was a no-go can actually turn out to be a booking after all. So don't just make the assumption it's all to do with price because there can be all these other reasons that you didn't get the booking as well. One magician who I have got an awful lot of time for is David Regal from the United States. I think David is an immensely creative man. And what I love about his magic is not only does he take often a very unusual yet still practical route to achieve the tricks that he wants to perform, but he nearly always creates an interesting and, and entertaining presentation to go with it. He's a master at taking something that could potentially be, in some people's hands, a fairly boring trick and turning it into a masterclass in how to make people laugh and give people a good time with a trick that would otherwise have been a bit boring. So he's got skills both in creating good methods as well as in great, creating great presentations. And I love looking at his, I've got both his books, Approaching Magic and Interpreting Magic. Both are massive and both are worthy of your attention and your money. The most recent one, Interpreting Magic, is an absolutely massive tome. Uh, hundreds of pages, loads of great magic. But one of the things that I, and the reason I go back to it uh, fairly regularly and leaf through it again, is because there are a number of essays about the theory of magic. And I find these really interesting. He, I don't necessarily always agree exactly with what David says, but he really sets me thinking. And there was one such article that I was reading the other day, and it was about, uh, he was making the claim that a lot of magicians, when they're creating magic, they, they sometimes put method in front of the effect. In other words, they put more importance on creating a clever method than they do in finding a good presentation. And he says, he thinks, and he proves this actually with his own, his own creative output, he, he thinks it's better to do it around the other way, that the effect should be the major thing because that's the thing that the lay people remember. And of course, it's true. I've always thought this with ring and rope routines. Ring and rope routines traditionally have always set up a situation where the magician will repeat, let's say, a ring going onto or coming off a length of rope. But the presentation is just, I can do it once, now I'm going to do it again, now I'm going to do it again, and finally I'm going to do it again. But the, the, there's no presentation that hangs this all together, which is why years ago I devised the ring competition in order to create uh, a presentation that would make some sense of me doing using three different moves to create essentially the same effect. And David does this all the time. And I think he, he's absolutely right about this, that you, looking at the method and making sure that the effect is not compromised, because this is the danger. If you become too concentrated on how the trick is going to work, sometimes you can compromise the effect to the point where what the audience sees is nowhere near as good as if you used a simpler, less interesting to you perhaps method, 
whereas a very simple, obvious method might create a clearer, more impressive trick to lay people. And what he says, and, and I agree with him with this, is it's better to find a strong effect and achieve that by whatever method it takes. Doesn't matter whether it's complicated or otherwise, just get the best and not to make that effect less by tinkering too much with the, the method. Are really wise, wise words, I think, and uh, certainly worth adhering to. So if, if you haven't ever seen David's work, he, there's a lot of his stuff out there, but I do feel those two books, they're, they're, they're not, for what you get, they are not that expensive. They're both both worthy of your attention. Lots of great close-up and stand-up magic. And I say these essays as well, which will certainly get you thinking. Now, I started this podcast by talking about post-COVID shows. Now we're going back to live audiences again. And my last topic is also related to that. I was reading one of the regular columnists in the Magic Circular recently. And he was talking about how he's made a lot of effort to change a lot of the material that he uses live in order to reflect the fact that audiences may still be nervous about touching props, getting too close to the performer and so on, which, of course, for us close-uppers can be an issue. But the thing that occurred to me was that I did a show in the middle of last year in the sort of gap between lockdowns. And I did a couple of shows in that period, one of which was in a hotel a big hotel and I was doing entertainment around tables after people had finished a meal. Now all the tables were separated by the statutory distance. They were sprayed with antibacterial stuff before people sat down. But I noticed that even at that stage, none of the staff were wearing any sort of face gear, masks or shields, nothing at all. And none of the guests were either. Everybody was very relaxed about it all. And and so I was kind of surprised that there was no feeling that, oh, I've got I've got to wear a mask. And so because I, oh, I said to the agent, do I need to wear a mask? He said, no, I don't think so. And yet you can go in other places now. Maybe it's just cafes or or pubs or wherever it is. And, and you suddenly realize that there are still quite differing amounts of protection that they require. Some shops are saying, OK, you're not required to wear a mask but we would prefer it if you did and so you wonder how long this is going to continue and whether as magicians we're going to be constantly having to reassess the levels to which we are prepared to if you like protect our customers our, our, our clients and uh, the people that were our spectators the people we're entertaining because th there doesn't seem to be a, a universal standard anymore it's, it's all slightly, I find it slightly confusing. For instance, are people, until I start doing live shows again, are people going to be reticent to examine a prop? I would imagine that most people aren't even going to think about it. But there might be others who say, oh, no, I don't want to touch that, thank you. Or is the fact that you're there, that they've gone out to somewhere to be entertained, that you are there as the entertainer, that they will just forget all that and actually any any preparations or precautions that we take will be totally unnecessary. It'll be overkill because people say, oh, I'm not bothered about that. The, the other show, the second of the two shows that I did in the Gap last year was a, was a small party. And, and I asked the booker, I said, look, there's only going to be six or seven of you. Do you want me to wear a mask? Oh, no, he said, don't worry about that. So, you know, some people have got a very 
you could say lax attitude to the whole thing uh, or relaxed at the very least and certainly now that restrictions have been lifted and we hope that they're not going to be reimposed at any time soon then maybe the 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 fact that people are, are now out enjoying themselves again will make them more relaxed about what we do i certainly hope so because there are quite a few effects that i do and i was looking at my list of tricks and i was thinking i really want to get these things examined because it Im improves the impact of that trick so much compared to if I don't have them examined. But if I feel that I'm awkward about handing them out, this, this is going to create this, this sort of funny situation where I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to. And I think what I'm probably going to do, I'm probably going to make the assumption that unless I'm told otherwise, that I can just perform as normal. Um, and I'm not going to make any particular allowances, I don't think. I will not. I don't get people to examine masses of stuff, but I do put pe things on people's hands. I do ask them to, to look at certain props, as I say. And I think I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, and unless I, uh, an agent or a booker says, I want you please to make sure that you don't, I, and I will ask the question whether what how far they want me to take it, then I think I'm just going to perform as normal until told otherwise. So thank you for listening to the latest podcast. If, you've, if you're going back to performing live or you've already started, good luck. It'd be interesting to know actually what you found with uh, the restrictions and how you've got around it and whether you felt the necessity to, uh, to do things in a different way than you did before COVID. If so, let me know and I can talk about it again next time. And in the meantime, have a good month. Bye for now.